Would you turn with me to Philemon, Philemon verses 8 to 18, shall we? Philemon 8, verses 8 to 18. Shall we read the scripture aloud together? Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for the little while was that you may have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better, as a, better than a slave. As a dear brother, he is very dear to me and even dearer to you, both as a man, as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Let's pray together, shall we? Father God, we give you thanks indeed for the many blessings that you have poured into this church, both individually and corporately. Now as we wait before you, we ask that you grant us a listening year and grant us an obedient heart. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire for thee. Speak, Lord, in a very powerful way to our minds and speak, Lord, in a very personal way to our hearts. Lord, we know that you know each one of our names. You know our names and you feel our pains. Some of us may be going through difficult time. They may have hidden struggles, hidden fears, and hidden tears. We lift them up to you. Holy Spirit, come and be our instructor. And come, be the comforter. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. It's a delight to be part of this service. Thanks to your pastor for being very kind and very persistent. Uh, I'm so glad my schedule allows uh, my presence this morning, and thank you so much for your friendship. Over 15 years ago, a very well-intentioned and elderly sister who loved me a lot, and she came to me and posed this question right to my face. Now, she did not mean to be mean. She is a very loving woman. She said this, she said, Dennis, you have preached many sermons about love. May I ask you, is your life an interpretation of love? Is your life an illustration of love? Is your life merely an instruction, instruction of love? That was a very sharp and relevant question. I thought a lot about that question ever since. I was much, much younger at that time. To be posed these questions, you have preached many sermons about love. But is your life an interpretation of love? Is your life an illustration of love? Is your life 
an exemplar of love. So that when people look at you, there is no suspicions, there is no speculation. It's crystal clear that this man, this woman, is an interpretation of love, is an illustration of love. It has been said, love is better, better caught than taught, right? Better caught than taught. Love is better illustrated than instructed. And love is better interpreted than speculated. When people see you, see me, would they say, hey, look, this is the man, this is the woman, where love is not, not only instructed, but concretely interpreted, illustrated, so that people are clear about it. There is no doubt. There is no need for suspicions, no need for speculations. Paul, a giant of faith, he's a, he's a mighty thinker. He's no man with nothing between the years, and yet his life is an illustration and interpretation of love. He not only instructs us about love, which Remember 1 Corinthians 13, which I read to myself for the last 19 years and many more to come. He wrote a very beautiful portrait on love. He instructs us on love, and yet now he interprets, he illustrates. He illustrates in the way he treats his co-workers and in the way he treats those people who don't measure up, who make mistakes. What's the historical context of this small book? Filled with affection, filled with love for people. What is the historical context? Three major, major characters. Anastomus, the runaway slave, he was guilty of stealing his, master, stealing his master's good or stealing from his master, although we don't know what has he stolen, but he stole. A thief. And then through the ministry of Paul, Onesimus became a Christian and his life was deeply transformed. According to Roman law, slaves have to be returned to their master. And it is in that context of returning, sending him back, that Paul wrote this beautiful, beautiful letter, full of affections. Let me share with you, if I may, how to be an interpretation of love. How to be an illustration of love. Not that I'm as expert in it. I aspire towards it. All of us need to aspire towards being an interpreter of love. I'm old-fashioned preachers who never uses PowerPoint. <laughs> Lucas, not that it is wrong to use PowerPoint. I never use PowerPoint. Why? Because my points are PowerPoints. <laughs> Lucas should cite me now. He quote me now. My points... May I say this, under the anointment of the Holy Spirit, all our points can be PowerPoints. Amen? Amen. Number first PowerPoint, number one. <laughs> Love is interpreted or illustrated not so much, not in commanding, but in seeking to respect others. That's the first PowerPoint. St. Paul, an older man, godly man, vested with authority, he could have authorized or command Philemon to receive back Onesimus, the runaway slave. Instead, he wrote a letter appealing, not commanding him what she should do with the runaway slave, not threatening, not warning, not imposing, not insisting, not authorizing what Philemon ought to do. Instead, he wrote a letter appealing on the basis of love that Onesimus may be received back into his household. In verse 9, 
Paul said, I appeal to you on the basis of love, not on the basis of my authority. And verse number 10, he said, I appeal for my spiritual son, Onesimus. Did you see how sensitive Paul was towards his co-worker? Thank God there are many enthusiasm and dedication that are poured into this church. And we are better off because of many enthusiasm and many dedications. But may I say this, there are people who can be very enthusiastic in the ministry, but lacking affection, affection for people. They lose the tactfulness, the skill, the relational skill with which to relate to others. And Paul simply makes a humble request on behalf of the runaway slave and leaves the final decision to Philemon's leadership. Is that not true love illustrated? Is that not true love manifested? Is that not true love illustrated, interpreted? Paul did not command, although he could, but he seeks to respect others. May I say this? There are people, maybe we are also guilty, guilty of that. There are people who have to command because they simply cannot trust others. But some people demand because they think they are indispensable. Others think they are so irreplaceable so they could say anything they want without considering the feelings of others. And still others enjoy in command because they are so afraid of losing power and losing control. Talking about marriage, apply to marriage like a highly chauvinistic husband. Husband, After one week of marriage, came to the pastor who officiated their wedding and said this, Pastor, you, pre you preached a very romantic sermon last week. But, and you said when two of us got married, two of us got married, the two became one. But you never told us which one. This is a lot quicker than the first service. <laughs> Your response is quicker. You know. When the two became one, you never told me which one. Is it her body joined with mine so that she could keep on nag, 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 nag until death do us part? <laughs> or is it my body joined with her so that I can control, control, or nag, nag, nag until death do us part? Sisters and brothers, the issue in marital. Relationship is not so much in controlling and nagging. Sometimes men nag more than women, right? Don't look at me with the funny eyes, yeah? <laughs> men, you are guilty just as much as women. We nag, we control. The issue is not who is controlling, who is nagging. The issue is whether we have mutual respect for each other. Where there is mutual respect, in, where there is mutual respect, relationship tends to decrease in conflict, decrease in conflict, and increase in understanding. And love is illustrated not in commanding, but in respecting. May I speak to the men here? Some of you men, women, listen too. Some of you men, you try and command your wife and see what will happen. The calamity will be great. And some of you women, listen to me, you try and command your husband around, I can assure you, your better half will become the bitter half. Talking about marriage, we are married for 34 years, next year is 35th. The first two years of marriage was hellish. It was all romantic in the in the wedding, but two years, the first two years of marriage, I look at my wife with a funny eyes. What did I get myself into? <laughs> like, she, 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 this woman, 
I tried to change her. The first two years of marriage was hellish. You know why? Because I tried to change her. I tried to change her into the mode of my operation and the mood of my affections. I tried so hard and I realized that she was basically unchangeable. And then she tried to do the same thing to me, tried to change me into the mood of her operation, the, the, mood, the, the mood and the mood for crying out loud. And she discovered I was hopeless. You know, I just can't be changed. And later on, we realized that marriage is not about changing your partner. It's about being changed by God for the sake of your, of your partner. Amen? Oh, this is too soft. Amen? It's, it's not trying, I mean, marriage is about my sanctification, not about my wife's sanctification. It's about our sanctifications. God changed us, not trying to change one another, change us for the sake of my beloved, my family. Not that I'm an expert in it. I praise God for a good wife. A president in a large company. He was the president for 35 years. He bragged about brag about his leadership for 35 years. He said, for 35 years as a president of this large company, I have never once had a stomach ache. And then what happened? One of the staff said, you, you don't have stomach ache. We have stomach ache. <laughs> and not only that, we have heartache by your unreasonable command and irrational demand. Would it be fair to say this? I'm not judging. Many friendships and many marriages broke down. And leadership cannot thrive. Relationship cannot thrive. They break down. Is it not because there are too much commanding and too little respecting? Leadership collapse. Leadership becomes sinking ship. It's precisely because of too much commanding and too little respecting. Paul handles the relationship with great care and consideration, tactful, skillful, considerate of the feelings of Philemon. Why? He loved Philemon, and therefore he demonstrated in the way he respected him. He demonstrated by respecting Philemon's leadership. So look at verse number 14. Paul said, with respect, he respectfully said, I did not want to do anything without your consent. Here is a criminal, somebody who stole from you, repented, converted. I'm sending him back. I don't know what you're thinking. I want your understanding. I don't want to give you stomach ache. I don't want to give you heartache. I don't know how you feel about my proposal. So Paul is simply making a humble request, not authorizing, but appealing. That to me is beautiful. Because all of us have authority, parents have authority, pastors have authority, nothing wrong with authority. But oftentimes we may go overboard and try to authorize too much command, too much, and there's so little listening and so little respecting. So brothers and sisters, we have to learn to let go our, our self-centeredness, learn to respect others. We often say respect must be earned. May I say this? Respect must be learned. And in the process of learning, you earn it. The older I get, the more I realize that this assignment is a very, very important assignment. In the process of learning, you earn it. And sometimes we may think 
too highly of ourselves, put too much weight on ourselves. I, I, we cannot say I'm a leader in this church. I'm somebody in my family, so everybody has to bow down and worship me or listen to me. We cannot demand respect. Respect must be earned by learning it. In the process of learning, you get it. Dear brothers and sisters, sometimes we think too much of ourselves. We put too much weight upon ourselves. Therefore, we are clumsy in human relationship. I like what G.K. Chesterton, the Catholic philosopher, talked about angels. He said, why do angels fly? They fly higher, freer, and with natural dispositions. Why do angels fly? And he put it whimsically. He said, because angels, they take themselves lightly. You like that? Lightly. They don't put too much weight on themselves. You put too much weight on yourself, you must go on diet. <laughs> I have gone on diet many times. I'm still on diet, therefore I look good this morning. <laughs> so, let's learn respecting. In the process of learning, we earn it. That's the first point. Second point. Love is interpreted not in, uh, not in depreciating, but in affirming others and making others useful and strong to encourage them to stand tall. Verse number 11, where Paul said, formerly, formerly, Onesimus was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I would have liked to have kept him longer so that he could help me in my ministry. He became as useful as Philemon himself was. Formerly, he was useless, but now he has become useful. Did you see the transpositions from uselessness to being made useful? The whole process, the whole process is a tedious process. It's a, it's a, it's a long process. Just think about yourself. Why are you still here? Is it not because of someone who came under you and pushed you up and stayed with you through the thick and the thing? Mom and dad were there for you. Uncle, auntie were there for you. Pastors were there for you. They are the angels that God sent to you to make you strong. You see, the whole process, I am the product. I am the product of those angels who came, whom God sent to make me stronger. Initius of Antioch, the church historian, Initius of Antioch said, Onesimus, this Onesimus later became an, the bishop, the bishop of Asia Minor Church. A criminal in the hands of the encourager becomes strong and useful, becomes very powerful leader. Although we don't know exactly how Paul was contributive to his usefulness, but we can, we can imagine that Paul might have seen this this slave who has stolen from his master. And Paul must have seen the burden, the burden that he bore, the burden of guilt and the burden of shame. And he didn't know how to handle his master's relationship with his master. And Paul might have, stand, might have stood there to encourage him, to make him strong. We praise God for brothers and sisters who gave themselves for our blessings, for our benefits. 
It's because of them we are made useful. And those are the creaturely gifts of God's providential care for you. Without them, there is no you. I am myself because of many selves. Amen. I myself, because of many self, many self, many others who came under me and pushed me up. My mother was one who made me very strong and very useful. When I was growing up, I used to be very diffident, struggling with all kinds of issues, societal issues, dispirited, disintegrated. My mother was very, very instrumental. See, my mother was married at age 15. Those were the time when they were married very young. She was married to my father, who is uh, 17 years older, 17 years older than my mother. They have never met. It was arranged marriage. And unfortunately, my father died when, when I was eight years old. And my, my, my mother became a widow at age 43, age 43. I can't believe that she can handle 10 kids. My mother is ultra productive. She had 10 kids, and I'm the nine. I can't believe it. And she is the most beautiful. She is physically attractive. She is the beauty of the beauty of the beauty of the beauty. The superlative beauty, a beauty than which no greater could ever be found. She is, she is the, the beauty of the beauty. You don't believe it? Look at me. <laughs> he who has seen me has seen my mother's beauty. And what did I say? What, I forgot my change. She said, you know, she died eight years ago. I, 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 I still remember 10 years before, before she died, she came up to me and said, son, I am praying for you. You are a doctorate. You are a doctor of philosophy. You know what doctor of philosophy, PhD means? Per, PhD means permanently head damage. <laughs> or PhD means like phenomenally dumb. He said, you are a PhD. But may God give you a penetrating eyes. Of all the family members, my eyes are the biggest. She said, the most beautiful eyes. But good for nothing. Because you are blind. I pray that God will give you a penetrating eye. Who could penetrate into the hearts of others to see the woundedness of people. And I also pray that God will give you a compassionate heart, a heart that feels. Why? Because she said, you have no feelings for people because you are a PhD. I don't want my son to be so devoid, so devoid of affection, so devoid of emotions, so devoid of care for others. I always remember that. So eight years ago, before she died, she came up to me and said, do you have enemies? I used to be very afraid when my mother asked that question. But that year, I said, no, I don't have enemies. They, I may have disagreement with people, but they are not my enemies. So brothers and sisters, what my mother taught me is, may God give you a penetrating eye and a compassionate heart the two combined, then you will be an effective interpreter of love. You will be a very effective agent of love. Thank God for a good mother. So our prayer every day, my prayer every day is what? Lord, restore my sight. Restore my sight. Restore my sight so that I could see the pain of others. 
God inflame my heart so that I may feel the woundedness of others. Paul loved young Timothy. He was young, inexperienced, and yet Paul wrote two letters to encourage him. And I believe that God, he must have taken hold of this anathemas and saw the guilt that he bore, the burdens of shame that he carried. And Paul saw it and felt it and made him strong and useful. So brothers and sisters, thank God for mothers, for fathers, for all the leaders who gave themselves for your benefits, for your benefits, without which I don't think we will ever be made useful, useful. Amen? Finally, the final principle. Love is, in, love is interpreted not so much, not in, cal, not in being calculative, but in being magnanimous, in being generous. I love English language. I read English dictionary every day, Oxford English dictionary, and I happen to look into the word magnanimity which is one of the longest words, I think, in English language. Magnanimity, meaning somebody who is big at heart, whose heart is so big, therefore that person is very generous. There are only two kinds of people in this world. Big people and little people, right? <laughs> little people have so little heart, a heart so little that it cannot contain anything else but himself. It cannot see anything else but himself. Therefore, the influence are very limited. But big people have a big heart, a heart big enough to take in the mistakes of people, the past failures of others, differences in temperaments, difference in sentiment and personality. Could Paul, could Paul calculate? Yes, he could have calculated or rationalized. How can I associate with someone with a criminal record? That will be a disadvantage to my leadership. That will be a threat, perhaps an impediment, if not a threat, impediment to my reputation as a leader. And yet Paul exhibit a big heart, a heart big enough to contain all kinds of people. Remember Romans chapter 16, which I call the friendship text. There Paul listed a long catalog of names, over 35 names in that chapter. In other words, all these people are in his heart. The rich and the poor, the old and the young, the Jews and the Gentiles, the educated, the uneducated, male and female, masters and slaves, even Onesimus, the criminal. Look at verse number 12. He, he called Onesimus, I'm sending my very heart back to you. Oh, this is, this is love. This is love not just simply exemplified. It is amplified. A criminal now, my very heart, and he regarded Onesimus better than a slave, as a dear brother, as a partner. Welcome him as you would welcome me. And then verse 18, Paul said, if Onesimus owes you anything, charge it into my account, charge it to me. Paul was generous enough to pay back what Onesimus owed to Philemon. Charge it into my account. The word charge is a rich word. It has to do with the doctrine of justification by faith. What is the doctrine of justification by faith? 
In that doctrine, we realize that Christ's righteousness is charged unto us sinners, and our sins are charged into Christ. There is a joyous exchange, says Luther and Augustine, joyous exchange between Christ's righteousness and our sinfulness. Christ's righteousness is given to us. We don't have our righteousness. There is nothing in us to have a claim on God's grace. Righteousness is Christ's righteousness, that by which we are liberated. It is not by my righteousness that we are set right by God. It is by Christ's righteousness that by which we are set free. We are liberated. In other words, Christ paid the debt of sin in order that we might be set free. He purchased our freedom in that sense. We have nothing. We come to God with nothingness. And God could do something out of it. And Paul, having been apprehended, apprehended by the gospel of the joyous change, he now applies it, applies it in his relationship or to his relationship with the runaway slave, Onesimus. And he said, he owes you anything? He's in debt? Charge it, charge it, charge his debt into my bank account. I will pay for it. I think that was beautiful. Where did he get it? Christ pay our debt. In us there is nothing, no righteousness. But Christ's righteousness is reckoned unto us, charged unto us, lent it to us, so that we have a right standing before God. All is given by God in Jesus Christ. Having been apprehended by the gospel of the joyous exchange, he now applies it to his relationship, charge it. Just as Christ paid the debt to liberate us from sin, so Paul paid his debt to purchase him freedom. What a big heart. Dear brothers and sisters, have we been forgiven? We have. If we are in Christ, then no longer we look at each other in an unforgiving manner or in a hostile manner. Those of us who are in Christ, we are given, we are given new spectacle, new lenses, new spectacle, new lenses with which to look at each other. No longer through my personal preference, but through the cross. And can it be that my God should die for me and for you, Charles Wesley? And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? You, you, you miserable sinners could gain an interest in my Savior's, in our Savior's blood. And John Calvin said, when the gospel is preached, the blood of Jesus Christ drips, and it still drips. And by that, our hearts are sprinkled afresh. And having been sprinkled afresh, now we live for others. Because we have been forgiven by Christ, we no longer face each other in a hostile, unforgiving manner but in the amicable, forgiving manner. Because we are forgiven, so we learn to forgive others. Because in Jesus Christ, we are God's beloved people, therefore we must be most loving of people. Amen? Love, most loving. Learn to be generous. Learn to be magnanimous. To allow the mistakes of others, not to clobber them, but to cover them with grace with mercy, and not trying to be calculative, but try to be magnanimous in our dealing with those who don't measure up. 
Sometimes we are into the game of who is better, who is worse, who wins and who loses. Sometimes we are, we are playing those games in our human relationship. I am more right, the other person is more wrong. Sometimes we play those games and those kind of attitude and actions are not contributive to any sort of harmony. In fact, it distorted and destroyed it. Wimbledon Tennis Final, 1965. Wimbledon Tennis Final was on replay on television. And I watched it very intently, though I'm not a tennis player. But that was a very important incident in that replay, which I felt very significant, and it illustrates my point. On the player's second service, the linesman shout fault, which means the, the ball is a fault. But the player thought his service was not a fault. It was right on the line. It hit right on the line. So he disagreed. He protested. He protested uh, to the linesman. Unfortunately, the, the umpire, the guy sitting up there, supported the linesman's decisions, so he lost the point. However, the opponent, the opponent also felt that his service was a good one. It was right on the line. The most amazing thing was this. It was on national television. When the player served another ball, the opponent, the opponent simply walked away. Walked away and lost that point because he, he think that the previous ball is not a fault. So he allowed the player to gain the point which he felt he should have gained in the first place. Is that not magnanimity? Is that not generosity so publicly and vividly displayed that the entire outlook of tennis game has been changed and the relationship between the two players would have been enhanced? What would small people say? Small people would say winning. Winning is not everything, but winning is the only thing. That's what small people would say. Winning is not everything. Don't, I know that my mother tells me all the time, don't come and tell me that. Winning is not everything, but winning is the only thing. That's what the small people will say. But the magnanimous person will say, it's all right. Allow others to win, for winning is not the only thing. You know, as a pastors, leaders, you can identify with me sometime in my office. People coming to my office, by all means, they can come to my office and say all kinds of things and those things will be kept confidential until I die. But sometimes I get pretty, pretty nauseated and very upset, very depressed when, when people are into who is right, who is more right, who is more wrong. Sometimes I got so tired. I wanted to say to the person, do you really think that I, I care whether who is more right and who is more wrong? No, I don't care. I go home and sleep, which I did sometimes. And I said to them, do you really think that God cares you are more right, the other person is more wrong? No, God doesn't care. But what he cares is your heart. Blessed, is the, blessed are the pure at heart, for they shall see God. Amen? They shall see God. When they see God, they are no longer the same. So, brothers and sisters, maybe you are right. May I caution you? 
you can be so right that you become self-righteous. If you think you are right, your pastor thinks you are right, everybody thinks you are right, then it's about time for you to manifest generosity, a big heart. Why? Because a big heart, generosity and magnanimity is the heart of God. Amen? It's the heart of God. So may God teach us, empower us to be an interpreter of love. Is your life an interpretation of love? So that people can see you crystal clear. No need to speculate. No need to suspect. May God help us. May the Spirit indwells us, energize us, create in us a desire to be Christ-like. Let us pray together. Father God, we give you thanks for the simplicity of your word, which we often bypass the implications and the import of those sweet, sweet words. Just as we are forgiven in Christ, teach us to forgive those people who wrong against us. Grant us the heart of generosity, a heart of magnanimity, because that is your heart. In Jesus' precious name we pray.